the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 8 and verse 12, the 12th verse of the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We come back to consider this great and momentous statement once more because it holds us face to face with the great offer of the Christian gospel, the Christian message, the Christian faith. Here we have it from the lips of our Lord himself. He tells us, what he can do for all who are ready to follow him. And what he says is this, that we can be delivered from darkness. We can be delivered from walking in darkness. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is very practical. It starts by telling us that we are living in a world of darkness. That uh, we don't know where we are and we don't know where we are going. We don't know what to do. That is the fundamental postulate of this biblical message, Old Testament and New alike. That is really the reason for the message at all. If the world were a perfect place, there would be no need of a gospel. If everybody was basking in the light and dwelling in it and walking in it, well, there would be no need of Christianity and of the Christian church. So you see, that is the beginning, there is the first point. We are in a world of darkness. We don't understand the world. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand what's happening in the world. There's no need to prove this, is there? The darkness of the world is surely more evident today than it has possibly ever been. The darkness of the moral muddle. The darkness of men fighting men, preparing for war, in spite of all that's happened to him twice over in this one century, Man doesn't learn the lesson. Man still goes on in the same old way. And there doesn't seem to be any light. Nobody seems to know why these things happen. Everybody as an individual seems to be denouncing it. And yet collectively these are the things that men do. Well, we're in a world of darkness, I say. And here we are confronted by one who stands up and says that it's possible for us to be delivered out of this darkness. He that followeth me, he says, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. There's no need, he says, to go on any longer like that. You can be given an understanding of life. You can be given an understanding of yourself. You can be given an understanding of the world in which you live. You can be given an understanding of history. You can be given an understanding of the future both the future of life in this world and that great eternal future that lies beyond the veil to which we are all hastening. Now, this is, of course, a very momentous and a very striking statement. And that is why we are considering it together. This is Christianity. This is the message of the Christian Church. To proclaim and to announce that this is possible this evening. 
that nobody needs go on any longer walking in darkness. With all the darkness within and without, it can come to an end. There is a light of life possible. Now we've been engaged in considering the ways in which our Lord gives us that light. But tonight, having done that, I want to consider this with you. Have you got this light? Are you enjoying this light? Are you walking in this light? How do you feel as you look at yourself and as you look at the whole world this evening? Is it all a complete muddle to you? Do you say, well, I don't know, I don't understand. You know, that's what the majority are saying. They've even stopped thinking. The majority of people in this world at this moment, in spite of all that they read in their newspaper about the tension and the uncertainty, the, even the possibility that somebody may let off a bomb or pull a trigger that will smash the whole world up and end everything, in spite of that, the vast majority of people have given up thinking. They say, what's the use of thinking? What's the value? Nobody seems to know. People are talking, but they've always been talking, but all they've said has been falsified by events and by facts. None of it comes true. The statesmen are obviously baffled. They don't understand. Nobody understands. So they will say, what's the use? What's the use of anything? They become utterly desperate or they become cynical. And in both cases, they come to the same conclusion. They say, let us eat, drink, and be merry. Let's try and make the best of every moment we can. We may not have many, but now that's a counsel of despair, isn't it? That's just to give up and to give in and to say, well, the things, the outlook is so black, the world is in such darkness that there is no light possible. Give in, give up. Just make the best of the moment. But you see, over and against all that, here it is. Light is possible. There's no need to walk in darkness. This gospel offers to deliver us from the darkness, to take the darkness out of us, and to give us the light of life. Now, this isn't something theoretical. This is a fact. Because we've got history here in the Bible which shows that the very thing that our Lord himself offered literally actually came to pass. There are instances in the gospels while he was still here himself of men and women who, having listened to him and having done what he said, found their lives completely changed and revolutionized. And you get it in the subsequent history. I read for you tonight, this, for instance, what we are told there at the end of the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. There on that first day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, nearly 2,000 years ago, 3,000 people passed immediately from darkness into light. People who had started listening to the Apostle Peter in complete darkness suddenly saw this light and entered into it. And you notice the result. Gladness, joy, understanding, happiness. And on they went. Clearly men whose problem has been solved. Everything had been changed for them. Well, now, there it is. There is uh, one example. 3,000 people in the day of Pentecost. What our Lord said, you see, actually came to pass. He that followeth me, he says, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And 3,000 had it after one sermon. And you go on reading the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and you find the same thing being repeated. And you go on reading the history of the church, 
And you'll find that that has gone on through the running centuries. Sometimes it's just been an odd individual here and there. Sometimes in periods of what we call revival, thousands again have come to see this light. Their whole life has been changed. The darkness is gone. And they've suddenly had an understanding of the whole thing and have entered into a great joy which has enabled them to live in a new way and to die with triumph and with a sense of glory. Very well, the question is, is this, isn't it? Have we got that light? Are you surprised at the state of the world? Or have you got the explanation given here of it all? Do you see why the nations are behaving as they are? Or are you completely amazed at this? If you follow the world's philosophy, you'll be amazed. Because that's been telling us now for so long that everything's developing and advancing. And that man, educated, scientific, and so on, is no longer a fool. But uh, he obviously is a fool. And yet, you see, there's light here which shows exactly why things are as they are. Gives us an insight into the future course of history. And enables us even to look into the face of death without being frightened and without whimpering. Gives us light on what lies beyond death and the grave. It's here. Or do you want life as to how to live? Well, it's here. And it's here alone. I and I alone, he says, am the light of the world. Well, now, my friends, I ask my question. Have we got this light? Wouldn't you like to have this light? Let me ask the third question. How can one obtain this light? The light of life. Oh, to be able to live worthy of the name of men. Oh, to live as children of the light and children of the day. Instead of to be groping in the darkness or to sit down in utter and final despair. How does one get this light of life? Our Lord answers the question. He, he says, that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Therefore, the thing for us to consider this evening is as to the meaning of these two words, follow me. What does that mean exactly? What does that include? Ah, says someone, I'd give the whole world if I could only have this light. I'm unhappy, I'm miserable, I'm baffled, I admit I'm defeated. And what I need is light and I need life. How can I get it? Well, here's the answer. Follow me, he says. But what does this mean? Well, now let's look at this together briefly this evening. The first thing, obviously, that it must mean is this, that we must. Believe him. I mean by that, that we must believe that he is who he says he is. Now you notice how he goes on repeating that phrase. He says, unless ye believe that I am he. That's his phrase. I am he. He says, if you believe that I am he, you'll have the light of life. If you don't believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. So the first thing obviously is this. And in any case, it is the obvious question to ask, isn't it? If I'm confronted by a person who says to me, now look here, you just follow me. You just come after me and do what I tell you. And everything will be all right. The first thing to ask about such a question is this, yes, that's all right, but who are you? What are your credentials? There are many charlatans in the world who come with their nostrums. They can solve all our problems for us. They can tell us exactly what to do. They've got a quick way of making a man's fortune. Do what I tell you, they say. But then the first question, if you're sensible, you ask is this, well, who is this man? What are his credentials? 
before I take the risk of following him, before I forsake what I'm already doing and the ideas that I already have, I want to know who this person is. It's a tremendous thing for a man to say, follow me. It means an utter absolute allegiance. Well, then I ask, who is he? Now, that is the question. You notice that these people to whom he was speaking kept on asking the question, who art thou? Yes, but you know, the way in which you ask that question is very important. They asked it in utter sarcasm and derision. They said, who art thou? Who are you to be saying, follow me? You're only a carpenter. And you've come from Nazareth, and no good has ever come out of Nazareth. Who are you? You're not a Pharisee. You've not been trained in the law. You're not a Sadducee. You're not a priest. Who are you? Who are you to stand up and say like this? Who art thou? Utter sarcasm. Well, I needn't remind you that if that's our approach, nothing will ever come of it. But there's another way of asking the same question. Here you look at this extraordinary person, this carpenter, I say, brought up in Nazareth. Oh, here he is at Jerusalem at the center of learning, the center of religion, on the great feast occasion. He stands up and he says with the great candelabra behind him, typifying the light that the Messiah who was to come was to give, he stands up and he points it at, at it as it were and says, I am the light of the world. And the right way to ask the question is this. Who are you? What are you? Who are you to make such an extraordinary statement that you are the light of the whole world and that you alone are the light of the whole world? You ask your question in amazement and in reverence. You ask it because you want to know more about him. You don't ask it in this way that they asked in order to turn him down. That isn't asking a question that's making a pronouncement. Oh, but if, if we really are concerned, if we really are honest with ourselves, if we are true seekers for light and for truth, for knowledge, deliverance, redemption, understanding, well, then I say we'll come to him as suppliants, we'll come to him as beggars, We'll come to him in our ignorance and darkness. We'll look up into his face and say, Tell me, who are you? You're saying the very thing I want to hear, but who are you before I risk my all and come after you? Who are you? Well, thank God he answers the question. He even answered it for these people. These people who treated him with their sarcasm and derision. Now, my friends, I simply want to hold before you what he says about himself. It was because they believed these things that the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost became Christians and became so glad and so happy, shared all their goods in common and rejoiced in being in the company and the society and the teaching of these apostles. 3,000 of them, they believed what? Well, what he says here about himself. What does he say? Well, the first and striking thing he says about himself is this. He says, I know whence I came and whither I go. But you cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Look at this person, Jesus of Nazareth. This man who stood up there in the temple and said, I am the light of the world. This is what he says about himself. He said, now listen to me, I'll tell you why you should follow me. I know whence I came and whither I go. You get the significance of that statement? Tell me. 
Can you tell me whence you came and whither you go? Could you stand in this pulpit tonight and say, I can tell you where I've come from and where I'm going. Can you? Of course you can't. You don't know. We none of us know. We find ourselves in this world. We know the theories. We've read the theories of the philosophers. Plato believed that we existed somewhere before being in this world. There are people who still believe that sort of thing. Reincarnation, things like that. Well, I'm not going to weary you with these various theories. There are many theories. But they're all theories, of course, and all, our consciousness is this. That we just don't know. Our idea is that we began living when we were born into this world. And the real beginning of living is the first dawning of consciousness. We don't know. We start there. Then, uh, whether I go? Well, now, where are you going? Do you know? Can you tell me about your future course? Can you tell me what's going to happen to you? You don't know how many years you're going to live? Then you're going to die. But what then? Where are you going? Do you know? Ah, my friends, here is a person. Here is an extraordinary person. Here is someone who is quite unique and alone in this respect. He says, look here. I know where I've come from. And I know where I'm going. What's he mean by that? He means this. He didn't begin in Bethlehem. He didn't begin when he was born. That's true of everybody else, not of him. And this isn't a theory, you see. He says, I know. He only came into this world in Bethlehem. He's come from somewhere else. He's come from eternity. He's come from the everlasting. He's come from the unseen realm. He's come out of eternity into time. I know whence I am come. There's a great story before he ever came into this world. Would you like to know something about it? Well, John has given it us, you see, at the very beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's it. I know whence I've come. He doesn't hesitate to make a statement like that. Listen to him. Realize what he's saying. And in the same way he says, I know where I'm going. Where is he going? He's going back to the place from which he came. You will find him later on in chapter 17 of this same gospel, praying to his father and said, Father, I now come unto thee. And he says, Give me again the glory which I had with thee before the foundation of the world. That's how he spoke. He knows about it. He knows where he's come from. He's come from heaven. He's going back into heaven. And he knows exactly what heaven is like. He started there. He's come down into the world. He's going back out of it. Back to heaven where he was from all eternity. That is his statement. That is his claim. Oh, let's go on. 
The second thing he says is this, that he's altogether different from all other men. He's already said it there, but he says it now much more explicitly in verse 23. He said unto them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. You know, my friends, there is nothing more important for us in this world this evening than just to know exactly who this person is. Because here he is saying things that nobody else has ever said before. And nobody has ever said since. There is no more momentous fact confronting human beings this evening than this person who stood up there in the temple and said, I am the light of the world. For believe me, apart from this person, it's nothing but chaos. There is no hope. The world is mad. And it's going to hurtle itself to a final destruction. But if this is the son of God as he claims to be, well, then I say there is light and there is hope. So, you know, this is the most important question for you. This is the business of Christianity, to get men and women to confront this blessed person. I'm not interested in your views on this, that, or the other. People are arguing and discussing about these various matters. Believe me, none of it matters until you're clear about this person. This is the fact. And this is what he says. He says, you know, I'm not like you. You all belong to this world, to this realm of time. You're all human beings. He says you are from beneath. That's what he means. He explains it by saying you are of this world. And we are, of course. We are creatures of this world. We are born into it. We bring with us from our birth a great deal of things that have belonged to our fathers and forefathers. We are from beneath, from all that's gone before us. Heredity is tremendously important, isn't it? Yes, we all start with prejudices and with instincts and the balance of these things determined by our forebears. There's no question about that at all. And then we come into the world and are immediately influenced by its mind, by its outlook, by its understanding. We think as the world thinks, we reason, we do all the things the world does. That's our outlook and we can't get beyond it. The highest philosopher, the greatest mind, the greatest brain that the world has ever known has never been able to get beyond this world. They've speculated about the other, but they don't know. They've tried to. The world by wisdom knew not God. They tried to find him, but they couldn't. They've been trying to see beyond the veil. They've been doing their psychic research and other things. They're doing it now, but they can't get there. They can't penetrate. They're of this world. Ye are from beneath. Ye are of this world. But he says, I'm not. I'm not. I mean it. I'm a man as you all are, but you know, I don't belong in the sense that you all belong. You are all one and there's no exception to you. I've come amongst you. I've come into this world of yours. I've taken on human nature, but you know, I'm not one of you. Now that's a tremendous statement to make, isn't it? Here he is, this carpenter of Nazareth. He stands up and says, I am from above. I am not of this world. He's different. He's come into it. He isn't of it. He isn't a product of it. He hasn't been thrown up by it. And isn't it obvious as you look at him and all his teaching? You can't explain Jesus Christ in terms of human history and human development. He stands out nearly 2,000 years ago, towering above all before him and after him. You can't explain Christ. He's a root out of a dry ground. He's someone unique, and he says he is. 
He says he's not of this world. He doesn't belong to it. He's come into it. He is a man, but he's not only a man. There is this essential difference, and it works out in every respect. He says, you see, that his thinking is different. He says that the words that are given to him are not his. He says, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. What men dare say such a thing? Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all the philosophers, what do they say? Well, they say this. They say, now I've given this much thought, I've meditated much about this, and I've read many books. And I have come to this conclusion. Quite right. Well worth studying. Well worth dealing, treating with great respect. But you see, they never go beyond that and they're right. They say, this is what I've come to as my conclusion. Here is one who says, what I'm saying to you is what I have received of my father. They're not my words. They're not my works. I'm telling you what he's told me to say. I'm doing what he's told me to do. I've been with him. I was with him from all eternity. I was with the Father. He speaks to the Father face to face. He is the mouthpiece of God. He's the Word of God. That's what he claims. I mustn't hold you with these individual things. I want to give you this composite picture. The next thing he says is that God witnesses to him. He says that twice over. Listen to it in verse 16. He says, and yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am the Father which sent me. And then in verse 18, I am one that bear witness of myself. And the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. He says, you people, you say you won't believe unless a man can bring forth two witnesses. All right, you're perfectly correct in saying that. But I've got two witnesses. I am one, and my other witness is my father. Is there ever a man who's made such a statement? No, no. This is unique. How has God borne him witness? Well, in the Old Testament. There in the Old Testament prophecies from, begin, from the very beginning, even from the Garden of Eden, God had been making promises. He was going to send a deliverer, a messiah. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. That's the original promise. And thank God for it tonight. The serpent. His activities are very obvious in this modern world, don't they? The evil and the sin, the hatred and the malice. Where does it come from? From hell. From the devil. The serpent that has entered in, spitting out his vile poison and his poisoned life. He's poisoning it tonight. Taking the pure and making it impure. Taking the clean and making it dirty. Taking the beautiful and turning it into ugliness. The serpent with his venom, with his spite, his spleen, his malice and all that is so true of him. Ah, but thank God, God has promised that he is going to send a deliverer through the woman, the seed of the woman, shall bruise the serpent's head. And he went on giving his promises throughout the running centuries through his servants, the prophets. What is he doing? He's bearing witness to this one who is to come. Here he is. He says, my father bears witness to me. But he not only did it in that way, he did it actively even while his son was in this world. How did he do it? He did it at his baptism. He did it at the Mount of Transfiguration. The voice spake from heaven saying... This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
In the twelfth chapter of this gospel, you'll find that the voice came again when he began talking about his death and his miracles. He turned to these same Jews who wouldn't believe in him a little later, and he said, Though ye believe not my words, believe me for the very work's sake. He says, Look what I'm doing. He sent the same message to John the Baptist, who was in a little bit of doubt. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf are made to hear. And even the dead are raised, the gospel is preached to the poor. That's what the prophet said the Messiah would do. Look at what I'm doing. Look at the works. He challenged them. Look at the works. That is his father's witness and testimony to him. And then I lead you to the other thing, the last thing. But it's a very striking one. Did you notice how he keeps on talking about his death? Did you notice his knowledge about his own death? Here it is in verse 14. I know whence I came and whither I go. What a way to look at the end of your life and at your death and what lies beyond. I, I know all about it. Do you know all about it? Has any man ever claimed that? Of course not. Oh no, says Shakespeare. Thoughts of that unknown born from which no traveler returns. That's the trouble. We don't know and nobody comes back to tell us. Here's one who says, I know where I'm going. But then we've got an interesting statement here in verse 20. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. His hour was not yet come. You know, he knew about this hour. A little later on, he stood again and he said, Father, the hour is come. Here is one who knows how long he's going to live, and he knows about his own death. Listen to him putting it again in verse 21. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. I go my way. What a way to speak about death, I say. Here is one who sees through it. Knows exactly what it's going to mean. Knows exactly what it's going to lead to. He's a master of life. He's a master of death. He talks about dying as my way. I'm going my way. It isn't your way. You won't be able to come after me. You'll try, but you won't. You'll try to seek me. They misunderstood the whole thing. They said, is he going to commit suicide? No, no, they didn't understand. You see, he says, I know exactly the meaning of death. As far as I'm concerned, I know what's beyond it. I go my way. And then he puts it very plainly to them like this. He says, when you have lifted up, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he. What does this lifting up mean? Well, uh, it means this. It means uh, crucifixion. Crucifixion. That's how they killed they took him in and they nailed him to a tree and they raised it up. A cross. When you have lifted me up, he says, then you'll know. In other words, he's telling them beforehand that they were going to crucify him. The very thing they did subsequently. Well, my friends, I'm giving you my evidence very hurriedly tonight. Let me ask you a question. The obvious question is this, isn't it? Who is this? Who is it? Who is this man, apparently, who ventures to speak like this? There's only one of two conclusions that you can come to. Here is either a complete lunatic, 
Or here is the Son of God. They're the only two possibilities. This man, this ordinary man apparently, this carpenter I say, he stands up and he says these things about himself. He says, I know where I've come from, I know where I'm going. You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. My Father has sent me, gives me the words and the works. You don't understand, I do. And you are going to crucify me, but that's just my going my way. And I know exactly where I'm going, and I know exactly what's going to happen to me. He's a true prophet, what he said happened. They did the very thing. He knows it all. He sees it beforehand. He's perfectly calm about it. It's all plain to him. My friend, have you ever faced these facts? Here is this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who belongs to history and to time. And that is what he says about himself. He says, follow me. And the one who's asking you to follow him tonight is one who said such things about himself. 3,000 people believed on him on the day of Pentecost. What did they believe? They believed that Jesus is the Son of God. They said he wasn't a mere man. He was Son of God. We didn't believe it. We were in the crowd that shouted away with him, crucify him. We made a tragic blunder. It was awful. We were wrong. He is the Son of God. They believed. They came to the light. It is always the first step. You've got to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God. You believe in the Incarnation. His coming out of eternity into time, taking unto him human nature, the virgin birth, the man, the God, the two in one, the divine human person, the word of God, the Lord of glory. It means that. Before you follow him, you must know who he is. And the moment you know who he is, you'll be already on your feet and ready to follow him. But wait a minute. The second thing is this. You must also believe and accept his teaching concerning the purpose of his coming into this world. I know whence I came and whither I go. He has come into the world. He's not of it. He's from above. He's not of this world, but he's come down from above, from heaven into this world. Why has he come? Well, I say you must believe that also, what he tells you about that. And he's perfectly clear. What he says is this. He tells us that he has been sent into this world by his father. He that sent me, he says, is true. I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. And he keeps on saying that. Why is he in the world? Well, he's in the world because God the Father has sent him into this world. And this is, of course, the heart of the gospel. Why did God ever send him into the world? And the answer is that he's got a work to perform. He's come on a mission. He's got a task. You go again to chapter 17 of this gospel and read his high priestly prayer, and you'll find that he turns to his father and he says, Father, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. My dear friend, have you ever realized this? God, the eternal Father, has sent his only Son into this world to perform a given definite task. He gave him a, a commission. He sent him to do something in this world. And what is this? Well, listen to him. He tells us that he has not been sent into the world to judge the world. He says that quite plainly here. 
He says here that uh, ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. What does he mean? He means this. God didn't send him into the world to judge the world or to condemn the world. That isn't the reason for his coming. And why not? Well, he's already told us in the third chapter, listen to this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why has God not sent his Son into the world to condemn the world? Well, I'll tell you. There was no need to do that. Why was there no need to do that? Because the world was already condemned. Because the world is already under condemnation. There was no need for the Son of God to come into the world to condemn it. Why? Well, I say the world is already condemned by the law of Moses, the law that God gave to Moses so long ago. The world is condemned by the Ten Commandments. Do we worship God and honor him? Do we live for him? Do we keep his laws? Are none of us guilty of uh, all the things that are indicated in the Ten Commandments? And the answer is, there is none, just no, not one. The whole world lieth in evil in the wicked one. The whole world lieth guilty before God. But you know, even apart from the Ten Commandments which God gave to men through Moses, his servants, we all know from our consciences that we are already condemned. We know we are evil and sinful. We know we are unworthy and unclean. The Son of God didn't come into the world to judge and to condemn. He says, I judge no man. He hadn't left the courts of heaven and come into this world and humbled himself in order that he might condemn us all. I say there was no need to. We are already in the dark. We are already failures. We are already sinners. We are already condemned. God's wrath is already upon us. That's why the world as it is. Why did he come then? Well, he tells us he came to save. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he says the same thing here himself. He puts it like this, you see. He said, therefore, and I said therefore unto you, that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. But, you see, if you do believe that I am he, you shall not die in your sins. He has come into the world in order to save men. That is his explicit, specific object in coming. And this is the message I have to give you this evening. That into the darkness of this world, which is the result of man's disobedience and sin, his original rebellion, and all that has followed from it, and all the consequences of that that he is reaping, God has sent his only Son into it, that we can be delivered from it. That we needn't be participators in it any longer. That we needn't go to the doom that is inevitably awaiting it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And how does he do it? 
Well, that's why he talks so much about his death, you see. Do you remember how he'd already said it in chapter 3? You know, this Gospel of John, it just goes on repeating itself chapter after chapter. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Moses lifted up the serpent. Do you remember what happened? There was suddenly a plague of serpents, and they bit the people, and the people died. And they were dying rapidly, one after another. And God turned, Moses turned to God and said, What can I do to stop this plague? And God said, Take and make a serpent out of a piece of brass. Make a brazen serpent. And then nail it to a pole and hold it up. And say to the people, Every one of you that looks at that pole will be healed. And every man that looked at it was healed. Now then, says this person, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He says, that's what I've come into this world. I've come to die. I've come to be crucified. I've come to be lifted up. What's he mean? Oh, he's the brazen serpent, as it were, in fulfillment. What does he do? Well, he takes the poison and the sting out of sin and all its consequences. How? By taking them upon himself. The judgment of brass upon the serpent and the foulness and the venom. He is this. Here's the great antitype of that type. He is referring to his death. That's what he meant when he said, I go my way, when you have lifted me up. I know where I'm going. Yes, I've come into this world not to stay here, not just to die out of it. I've come to die in a very special way. I came into the world for this hour that's coming. I have come to taste death for every man that believes in me. I have come to bear their sins. I've come to be the brazen serpent. I've come to be held up on a pole. I've come that men looking at me might be delivered from the consequences of sin and evil, that they might be forgiven, that they might be absolved, that they might be reconciled to God. God, that the gate of heaven might be open to them. That's what he said. That is his teaching. That is his explanation of the purpose of his coming. God so loved the world that he gave, sent his only begotten Son into it, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have your sins forgiven? Become reconciled to God. Know that you're a child of God. Lose the fear of death and the grave. Know that when you die, you go on to be with Christ, which is far better. And that you shall spend your eternity in a glory that baffles description. With God and with Christ. Oh, the holiness and the wonder of it all. You know that. That's what he's come to give us. Not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. You must believe that. That he is the Son of God. And that he came into the world in order to do that for you, to die your death, to take the punishment of your guilt, to reconcile you to God. The 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, they believed it. They cried out, saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the answer came back from... Peter is the voice of thunder. Repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of your sins. That's the answer. 
Believe that he is the Lord. Believe that it is through him alone that you can have remission of sins and the last thing. Obviously, you must act on it. You must do something about it. That's why he puts it here in terms of following me. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What does it mean? Well, you see, you must act upon this. It isn't enough to say, I believe what you're saying. I accept it all, but that's intellectual. My dear friend, you've got to follow him. This is essential. You've got to do something. You don't sit back and just believe this and go on as you were. No, no. He's going to lead you out of the darkness. And you've got to follow him. You've got to go where he is. And if you do that, he says, you shall no longer walk in darkness, but you shall have the light of life. There is action involved. You hear the offer. What you do, well, you believe it. What does that involve? Well, clearly the first thing it involves is this. You've got to repent. Repent and believe the gospel. What is repentance? Repentance is an acknowledgement of the truth of what the Bible says about you as a sinner. You believe this testimony which tells you that you have sinned against God, that you deserve no love, you deserve nothing but hell. You've sinned in practice, in actions. Your nature is sinful. You're by nature a hater of God. You believe that. You acknowledge it. You say it's right, it's true. You confess it. That's repentance. Admission that the Bible diagnosis of you and your condition is the simple, absolute truth. You stop saying, ah, but this is insulting. I'm a good fellow. I've never done any wrong. I've always tried to live a good life. You stop saying that. For as long as you say that, you've not repented. The man who repents is the man like our Lord's picture of that publican who went up at the same time as the Pharisee to pray in the temple and he was so conscious of his sin, he's there at the back beating his breast. He dare not even look up. He says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Have you realized that you're a sinner? Have you acknowledged and confessed your sin to God? that you haven't lived for his glory, that you haven't worshipped him, that you've spat upon his commandments, you've broken them, you've delighted in your own will, you've been proud of yourself and your own efforts and your own understanding, you've been a man of the world, this world, and you've gloried in it and laughed at this and have said, away with that Christ, like these people had said before the day of Pentecost. But have you seen how wrong it's all been? Have you repented, my friend? Have you gone into God's presence and said, God, I'm not worthy to come before you. I realize I deserve nothing to be cast out of thy presence for all eternity. I richly deserve hell for my pride, my conceit, my vileness, my foulness, my evil nature, my wrong deeds. Have you repented? It's involved in following him. It's an admission that you've been all wrong and that what he says is right. He says, oh, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Have you admitted to him that you're lost? That you don't know where you are and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to live and you don't know how to die. Have you ever said to him, Lord, you're right, I'm lost. I'm hopelessly lost. I'm helpless. Have you told him that that's to repent? Admission, confession of sin, being convicted of the truth of this word about yourself as you are by nature. Repentance and then acceptance of him and his teaching. In your utter hopelessness and self-despair, you turn to him and say, Christ, I believe your word. I believe you are the Son of God. 
I see how wrong I've been with my folly and my attempted understanding. I see that you are a son of God. I believe what you say about yourself. I believe what you say about your mission. I believe you've died even for me. I can't understand it because I didn't deserve it. But you've done it, I believe it. That your love is so glorious. That you loved even me and have given yourself. I believe it. I cast myself at thy feet. I accept your offer. I believe it's my only hope that you've died for me and therefore that God forgives me. I thank you. And then obviously, seeing this and believing it, you say, I'm not going on living any longer as I've been. You have said rightly that I am of this world and that I'm from beneath and you're right. I've been living for the world. I've been chasing its prizes. I've been going after its glittering bubbles, its vanities. I've been saying it's wonderful and I've been laughing at Christian people and saying, oh, how sad that they still believe that old fairy tale. I was taught it in the Sunday school, but the moment I became an adolescent, I gave up such nonsense. I see that it's right, it's true. I'm going to leave it. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shalt be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've thought and hoped and known. Yet how rich is my condition, God, and heaven are still mine own. Yes, if you're to follow him, if you want this light, the light of life, if you want to get out of the darkness and get the darkness out of yourself, you've got to follow him. And it means turning your back upon the world and all its sin and all its vileness and ugliness and foulness. You get up out of it. And whatever the cost, you go after him. You listen to his teaching. These 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. And if you want to have the light of life, you've got to come out of that world, leave it and all that belongs to it. Come into the Christian church. Follow Christ. Get hold of the doctrine. Delight in it. Read it. Understand it. Masticate it. Fair fellowship with Christian people. Remember the Lord's death and live a life of prayer. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's your choice. Go on living in the world, and you'll go on in darkness, and you'll die in a final despair, and you'll spend eternity in the darkness of hell. Come out of it. See who he is. See what he's done for you. See his love. Get up. Thank him, having fallen at his feet in utter penitence and contrition. Rise up and follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross. What does that mean? Well, it may mean this, you see, that your own nearest and dearest will say that you're a fool, that you've gone mad. It'll mean having the scorn of the people in the office or in the works or in the profession. That's taking up your cross. Let them say what they like, doesn't matter. He is son of God and he's died to deliver me that I shouldn't perish. I'm going after him. It means that you desire to please him. That you really are going to live from now on for his glory, for his namesake. Submitting to his teaching. Seeking his guidance. Receiving his spirit. 
looking to him for all you need, and laying, I say, with all your might and main to the praise of the glory of his grace. I almost feel that it would be insulting your intelligence to plead with you. If you realize that you're in the darkness and that you can never get yourself out of it, if you really see and believe that God has sent his only son into this world to deliver you from it, and that that blessed person even went to the extent of dying the cruel death on a cross that you might be delivered, if you really believe that, and if you believe further, that he can lead you into a life of glory, out of the darkness, into the light, out of shame, into happiness and joy, from hell to heaven, and eventual perfect bliss. A man who really sees that and believes it, doesn't need me nor anybody else to cajole him or to bring pressure upon him and upon his will and to try to hypnotize him. No, no, if you see it, that you're hell-bound and hell-deserving, but that God has so loved you as to send his only begotten Son to deliver you. You will leave that world and you'll be glad to do so as soon as possible. And you'll rise up and you'll follow Jesus Christ. He'll lead you through life. He'll lead you through death. He will lead you into the presence of his Father and present you before him, the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy. Three thousand people saw that on that first day of Pentecost, have you seen it on this day of Pentecost? This Whit Sunday, have you seen it? If you have, and if you've told him so, and if you tell him so now, and give yourself to him and follow him, you'll no longer walk in the darkness. You'll have an entirely new life. You will have the light of life. You will know your sins forgiven. You'll know you're a child of God. You'll understand the course of future history in this sinful world. You'll give up your illusions. You'll stop living to the fo listening to the false prophets. You will know that the world is doomed and under condemnation and that a terrible end is coming to it. But you will know that you are safe, that you've already passed from judgment into life. And you'll begin to look forward to that eternity of glory that is reserved for the children of God. Amen.